to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The water was black and visibility was maybe three feet at the most. But when we were on shore and getting ready to get in, we couldn't see our friends standing next to us. It was so dark. There was starlight in the distance, but there was, there was no light on the beach. Lynn Cox is a long-distance open-water swimmer. She's also an author and an activist. Lynn has spent her life swimming vast distances and pushing herself to the edges of possibility. While her strength, endurance, and bravery have led her through previously unswum waters, a tremendous amount of care and planning goes into each ambitious swim. Lynn is the first to say that she does not do this alone. You rely on your crew. Some of the swims I've done, I've really had to say, what do you think? you think it's safe enough? Can you have boats around me and will you be watching the water? And you have to have the sense that if something goes wrong, they're there to get you out and they know what they're doing. All of this stuff is really serious. I have usually three plans in place and then when those plans fall apart for some reason, I have smart people on board the boat that can think of something else to do. I mean, because anything can happen on a swim. Let's back up. At 12 years old, Lynn began swimming with Olympic coach Don Gambrill in Southern California. He recognized early on that she was not a pool swimmer. Sprints were not her strength. And he suggested that she try a three-mile open ocean race. So I entered the women's division. I was 14 years old, and I wound up winning women's division and coming third in the men's division. That was pretty encouraging, never having swum an open water race before. After that race, I heard about a group of kids that were going to swim across the Catalina Channel. So I thought, I want to do that. Lynn signed on to swim with the team, and they became the first teenagers to complete the swim across the Catalina Channel, from Catalina Island to the coast of California. In the back of her mind, the idea of swimming the English Channel was beginning to take form. It was about more than just swimming races. The soul of an explorer was beginning to emerge. I studied history, I loved history, but I think about the great explorers. You know, what was it like to sail from Europe to the United States for the first time or through the Northwest Passage around the Cape of Good Hope? I'd imagine that swimming this distance was a lot like being a great explorer because the things you would experience would be so connected to the water. That's a pretty extraordinary leap for a 14-year-old to make. I want to swim the oceans where the ancient explorers sailed. The true beginning of Lynn's epic journey took place at midnight on the shore of Catalina Island. The water was black and visibility was maybe three feet at the most. But when we were on shore and Catalina getting ready to get in, we couldn't see our friends standing next to us. It was so dark. There was starlight in the distance, but there was, there was no light on the beach. And so we're standing there waiting, and then somebody from one of the boats shined the, the light on us, and they shot the gun to start us off, and then we waded into the water. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is so black and so cold, and we are swimming to the coast of California. <laughs> you know, it's pretty wild to be like 14 years old and swimming for hours. 12 hours and 36 minutes to be exact. This was the moment that the seed was planted for the lifetime of pioneering long-distance swims to come. 
That 27-mile self-powered journey made it clear that Lynn was basically made to swim great spans through extreme conditions. She thrived on the act of pushing herself into uncharted territories. I had had great coaching with Don Garamble, so I was faster than my teammates. Um, so I, at times I would get way ahead of the group, and so I'd be out ahead with one paddler just swimming alone. And there's a sense of limitlessness that when you're out there in this black water, black sky, it's just like you are skimming across the surface of an ocean and you feel so strong and you feel like you can do it. You feel like this is really possible to reach the other shore. While many of Lynn's swims have been during daylight hours, channel swims like Catalina and the English Channel always include spans of darkness, simply because they take so long. And since ideal training occurs in similar conditions to the ultimate event, Lynn spent a lot of time in the ocean at night. I tend to do my training at night when I'm gonna do a night swim. When I was planning to swim Catalina Channel the first time, I was 14 years old, and we trained a lot of that time in the ocean between midnight and like four or five in the morning. Because when we swam Catalina, we were going to have to swim at night. So part of that training was also to get used to being, you know, in total blackness and figuring out how to navigate and stay on course and not run into your swimming mates because there were four other swimmers that were doing the swim with me. And so it was really good to do that ahead of time. And actually, I found out more recently there have been people that are doing Catalina Channel swims at night and they're getting seasick. And the reason they're getting seasick, I think, is partly because they have no set horizon to look at. So they're bouncing up and down on the water and they can't find a focus to keep them directed. And it makes them really feel like they have vertigo. This is one of the things that Lynn learned to deal with by training at night. What I did is I would look up at the stars and, and watch them moving across the heavens. And so I could use them as a focus. After the first Catalina Channel swim, Lynn maintained a rigorous training program, swimming alone many nights in the ocean off of Southern California. Now I look at that going, there's no way I would do that. But back then it was just like, oh yeah. I mean, back when we were kids, um, you didn't wear helmets when you rode a bicycle. Now it's like, are you nuts not to wear a helmet? So now I'd look at that and go, I'm not doing a, a training swim without somebody on a paddleboard or somebody in a kayak. But back then, it was just like, oh, yeah. I would drive to Huntington Beach, park the car, and wade into the water. You have to slide your feet when you get in the water in Southern California because there's so many stingrays, and you don't want to step on them and get zapped. So as you're getting in the water, it's black water, and you're feeling these things scurrying around your feet, and you're like, oh, my gosh. So you can't wait to, like, dive under the wave and then start swimming. I'd swim just on the outside of the wave break so I could maintain a really straight line. Occasionally, the lifeguards patrolling the beach would check to make sure that Lynn was all right. I'd be swimming along and suddenly they would turn the jeep lights on the water and I can see these long beams of light reaching out toward the waves and, and they were just making sure that I was okay. 
I loved it when there was a full moon because you could see the moonlight dancing on the water and you could look up and you could see the different designs. <laughs> it sounds so psychedelic, but you could look at the surface of the moon as you're swimming and there's so much happening in the sky at night. And if you, if you could get a good distance from the pier, maybe a half a mile or a mile away, there'd be less light and you could see more into the sky and see the depths beyond, which was wonderful to look at. I mean, when else are you doing that unless you're sitting down somewhere? But here you look at the moon and think, wow, you're the one that's pulling the tide and making it flow. And suddenly there'll be birds that swoop by you and they're like startled by you in the water because they're not expecting a swimmer. And you're like jumping up because you're not expecting a cormorant to like graze your head. It's wild, but it's fun. I mean, it's, it's you know, you could be at home watching TV or you could be out having an adventure and exploring the world around you, you know? Swimming in the open water at night entails extra precautions above and beyond the normal safety measures for open water swimming. When I'm doing a night swim, I have a kayaker very close to me. I mean, probably two arms lengths away, or a, a paddler next to me. Um, I have the support boat, instead of it being 200 yards ahead of me or 200 yards to the side of me, if it's not really rough, I'll have them 100 yards away. When you swim in the English Channel, you will have a support boat, and on board that boat will be a pilot who's very familiar with what the area looks like and what to look for while you're swimming and how to watch over you. In addition to that, you'll have an official observer who's also watching you throughout the swim. And when he or she is watching you, that person is recording the water temperature, the wind, the current, the tide, how often you stop to feed, what you looked like. And so there's this running document of what went on from the beginning of the swim all the way to the end. That's how things are now. But back when Lynn did her first swims across the English Channel, the rules were different. When I swam the English Channel, you weren't allowed to have a paddler or a kayaker. That was an assisted swim and that was against the rules. All you could do was put on a bathing cap, goggles, a swimsuit, and landline if you wanted to do it, um, and swim next to the boat. And you couldn't touch the boat or anyone on the boat, and if anyone fed you, they had to throw you the food. You know, you get so hungry on these channel swims, and so um, I primarily would eat oatmeal raisin cookies, and so you sort of get as close as you can to the boat without touching it, and then my mom would throw an oatmeal cookie overboard and I tried to catch it before it hit the salt water. And then if it hit the water, it was like, oh, it disappeared into the blackness. <laughs> there goes your treat. Channel swims generally begin at night because the conditions are often more favorable. The wind's down. The sea will be a lot calmer. The other thing is I think it's easier swimming from darkness into light than it is to go from light into darkness. There are people that do channel swims where it's the other way around, where they might start off in the morning and think they're gonna be done 10 hours later, but because of the currents or tides or whatever, they wind up finishing in the dark. And I think it's really harder because um, you don't have the warmth of the sun on your back. You can't see shore as well, so you don't have that reference point. And you don't know that there might be a group of people there waiting for you to reach shore. And all those things really are motivators. So I think it's, it's harder when you don't have those things. While the light of day can provide motivation to get to the finish, swimming at night in the middle of the ocean 
offers treasures that few ever have the good fortune, let alone stamina, to experience. And for Lynn, swimming at night is yet another unknown territory to explore. There's so much that happens at night that you would never experience during the day. There was always this sense of wonder of like, what am I going to see out there? What might run into me or what might I run into? And the darkness accentuates all the feelings, the emotions and senses. And in a way, it's weird, though, because you're, you become so dependent on listening because your, your visual sense is so reduced by the blackness. When you swim at night, it's sort of like the world collapses around you. Um, you don't have the sky you know, that's limitless. You don't have the water where you can see way below. It's just, you really are reduced in your sensory input. You are, but um, at the same time, you have to have a heightened sense of awareness to keep swimming. In that heightened state of awareness, Lynn has witnessed extraordinary things. When the water is really phosphorescent, it's so cool because you're swimming along and you can see the whole world of light emanating from your movements. So you have these giant streams of light streaking by your body. And then you can see people, if there's somebody ahead of you, you can, you can hear them, but you can also see these flashes of light as they take strokes in the water, as they agitate the plankton. I remember also when I swam Catalina and did the actual swim, the lights on the boats attracted flying fish. And so they would leap out of the water and, and they were iridescent and they would turn into like fairy colored pink and turquoise and blue and green. And um, you could see them as you're swimming and you're like, what is happening here? This is amazing. dolphins swimming beside you. They would come over and actually you would hear them squeaking and clicking and chirping. They always would stay about an arm's length away and you couldn't see them at night. You could just feel them moving around you and you could feel the flow off their bodies as it, as it pulled you along because you'd get a drag off of them. Swimming along and, and feeling this movement beside you and underneath you. Um, you feel like you sort of became part of the pod for a while. And also those squeaks and clicks sound like cheers. It was always wonderful because you felt like you have somebody else out there with you. You could feel the being of them, you know, you could feel their spirit, but you couldn't really see them. The best part of swimming at night is that you feel the connectedness to the ocean. It's almost like you're in a semi-dream state. You know, you're you're just moving along and you're and you're feeling the breath moving in and out of your body and you're feeling the strength of your arms and the power of your back and you feel your legs floating on the surface sort of kicking gently and you just are are at one with the water. You cannot distinguish yourself from the water itself. You feel like it lifts and moves you, but you feel like you're connected to the water within yourself. You feel this, this sense of when you look out into space and you see the stars, that you are part of the stars. You're made of that and, and everything is somehow connected. There's this grandeur that surrounds you and it's, it's, it's breathtakingly beautiful. The darkness accentuates your moods. It makes you focus in inside yourself and question what your life is about and what you're doing out there and what you want to do. You 
watch the water change in its blackness from very flat glassy water to ruffles to large waves and then suddenly the waves become sort of silvery because the foam breaks around you um, and, and it shatters and it, suddenly you feel different. You feel like you can can get over the waves or you can get through the waves and your body is dancing with the sea itself. You move with it. You aren't taken away by any of this. You are just wrapped up in it, enfolded, lifted, loved almost. You feel this sense of well-being that you are connected to life and to the earth and to the ocean and to what's around you. It's really transcendental. It's just spectacular to be there in the water at night. And sometimes the experience can turn to disconnection and solitude. You can feel very isolated when you cannot really see anybody on the boat and you can't really even make out the outline of the boat, you feel like you're really out there. And it makes it difficult sometimes because you really want to have a connection. And then there's also the sense of, you know, I'm really tired, I'm not feeling well, I'm really sore, I want to stop, I don't know how much longer I can go, I feel very isolated. And, and a lot of times that's when swimmers will give up on swims because they don't feel a connection and they've lost their purpose and they've forgotten what they're all about or they're just really tired and and they've been slogging for a long time and the currents haven't been good and the wind's coming up and they're really cold and hungry and they just want to stop and so I think that the blackness of the water isolates you and makes it easier for you to go hmm maybe this isn't exactly what I really wanted to do after all. It's so much easier when you can look up and take a breath and you see people on the boat and you see their eyes on you and you know that they're they're with you and cheering you on. But at night you feel often that you're out there all alone. And there's, you know, different ways you can take that. Sometimes it's like, wow, how cool is this that I can be out in the middle of an ocean swimming across and I'm just fine. You know, there's a boat nearby, but I feel this sense of elation that I can move, I can reach, I can go to a distant continent and my body can get there. You know, I have the power and strength within myself to do it. With the darkness, there's a lot of cold and, and you feel the cold of the water. You look at the cold darkness of the universe around you as much as you can see. And you think, wow, though, my body's full of heat. I'm creating heat as I'm working. I'm a little tiny star out here on the water and I'm strong. I've worked so hard so long to do a swim that so much is already invested in it that I want to see see what's going to happen. It's like reading a great book. You want to know what's going to happen at the end. When you hear a beautiful piece of music, you want to know how the song is going to end. So there's this, this sense of curiosity of like, okay, what's going to happen next? And what will I do? What have I learned? And what will I learn on this journey? That's the other part that's so exciting is that, you know, it is a journey. And it is a journey through darkness, and it is a journey into light. I mean, often, you do a channel swim at night, you wind up watching the sunrise and landing on shore and feeling the warmth of the sun. I asked Lynn if she ever got scared out there in the middle of the ocean at night. There are times that you do get scared. I mean, there were times when I got scared. 
but it still is something wonderful and mysterious and frightening to like walk off the beach, these pebbly beaches, into the water off Dover and then start swimming in black water toward France. It's just, it's, it's exciting and it's creepy and it's fun and it's just like you have to stay focused otherwise you'll scare yourself to death. You never really get totally comfortable because you just never know what's going to happen and you have to be kind of on this edge of alert. You run into stuff and you feel stuff like when I swam the English Channel I felt in the middle of the night I felt like these heads rolling around me like like people had had their heads cut off and they were rolling around and they couldn't and they kept swimming and these things kept rolling around and finally I yelled up to Reg Brickle and said what is in the water with me and he just started laughing he said well there was a there was a barge that went by and it had a bunch of lettuce heads on board and they were rotting so they just threw them overboard so you're swimming through lettuce heads there are times where you would feel large animals moving underneath you and you'd wonder well was that a seal mm, seemed bigger okay well was it a shark well maybe it was a blue shark you don't want the shark to mistake you for a seal. I'd run into jellyfish once in a while. You can't see where the jellyfish are. You can't determine where the tentacles are. You don't know which way to go. There's so many ships that are going through the English Channel, and you have to time it just right. The, the tankers are like two or three or four football fields long. They're massive. And so they, they move it between seven and I think it's nine knots when they're cruising through the channel. And there's no way they can slow down. So you've got to time it just right that you're out of their path. I remember sprinting as hard as I could for a mile. And just a couple minutes later, the tanker came behind me. When the tankers would pass, you would feel this huge upwelling of water underneath you when the water temperature dropped five to 10 degrees. So it's like hitting this wall of ice in a way because it was like, oh my gosh, you sort of take your breath away and then you'd swim fast to get out of that area where it had been churned up by the big tankers. The element of danger heightens all the experiences that you have on an open water swim at night. I think that it's just that vibrancy of life that you feel. You don't know what you're going to experience, and life is about having new experiences and seeing new things and, and basically learning more about life and your own life. Lynn became the explorer she set out to become when she was 14. Her curiosity to learn more about life than her own life has led her to break records that most people don't even know exist, to be the first person ever to swim the Strait of Magellan in Chile and the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. She has twice held the record for the fastest crossing of the English Channel. She swam more than a mile in the waters of Antarctica without a wetsuit. And a few years before the end of the Cold War, Lynn swam across the Bering Strait from Alaska to the Soviet Union in an effort to forge peace between nations. After the signing of the INF Missile Treaty, Reagan and Gorbachev lifted their glasses in a toast to her. She has an asteroid named in her honor. Lynn Cox has achieved things that most of us would never even dream of attempting. And she's maintained an excitement and passion that comes from more than a desire to break records and win trophies. For Lynn, 
the joy is in the thrill of discovery. At first it was, I really wanted to be a good athlete and I wanted to do something really well. And when I got into the ocean for the first time and really started doing these long distances, I felt like, oh my gosh, I can go on forever. I can use all this training to see where I can swim to. I don't have to take a car there, I can swim, you know? I think that as I get older, I realize that, you know, yeah, I want to break world records, and I did that. There's an environmental part, there's a scientific part, there's a political part of why I do these swims, and it's changed through time. But I think that as a musician, or as an artist, or an architect, you go through different parts of your life, and you experiment, and you grow, and you try new things. Right now, my goal is to get back into the open water and just enjoy it. Just go to places that I've always dreamed of and swim there. I mean, it sounds so basic, but that's how it all began. And I feel like in a way I'm coming full circle to that really simplistic way of, wow, I just would like to go out tonight and do a night swim. You know, I just like to, to be able to float and do backstroke and flip over and do breaststroke and freestyle whenever I want and see what it's like to be out there at night. listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Lynn Cox has written several amazing books about her experiences, including South with the Sun, Swimming to Antarctica, and Grayson, which tells the story of her encounter with a lost baby gray whale during an early morning swim. You can find more information about Lynn at nocturnepodcast.org in the notes for this episode. While Nocturne is an audio show, we are crazy fortunate to have Robin Galante creating original artwork every month. Robin sits down and listens to each episode several times while producing stunningly beautiful illustrations based on what she hears. Check them all out on the website, nocturnepodcast.org. And while you're there, consider donating to Nocturne. It's easy. Or rating us on iTunes. Also, Nocturne is a founding member of The Herd, a collective of really great, intelligent, well-crafted podcasts. Check them all out at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening.